This is Joshua Bell and the Tilt of the Cloth with our uh, Tuesday morning Bible study, and we are starting a new book, uh, and we're moving into the New Testament, and starting off with the Gospel of Matthew. So like we do with every Bible study, and it's been a while since we've done this because we've been in the book of Exodus for a long time, I give you a little bit of a conversation of the origin and the history of the, of the Gospel. Um, and uh, how, how we would read this differently than we have in the past. So um, for those of you that haven't been in a Bible study with me in the New Testament, I'm, um, I'm very critical uh, of, of things. And so what you will hear in our discussion is not a, um, well, the church says the gospel of Matthew means this. What you will hear is, okay, what we know as scholars and academics of the Gospel of Matthew for the last 2,000 years, we have found out this. And so um, some of this is going to contradict some of the things that you grew up with. Um, it, it's, uh, and, and it's a little frustrating sometimes. But the goal here is not to frustrate you as much as to help you have a better understanding of where these came from and their origin. And, and we have newer knowledge now today about the Gospel of Matthew than we did 50 years ago. I mean, it's it's moved very fast since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, so, um, which would have been 1949 through 1952. We have two different massive, three, three massive archaeological digs that take place. Doesn't change anything uh, for us for the Gospel of Matthew. Dead Sea Scrolls were not uh, didn't affect the Gospel of Matthew very much, um, but um, just the fact that archaeology and history and academia has really made us look at the New Testament with a new lens. So um, one of the problems that you're going to find in the, in the aspect of discussing New Testament is, is that we all, no matter how hard we try, uh, read the New Testament with what we call embedded theology. Um, this embedded theology, this is what we've been brought up to believe, what we've um, understood that the texts tell us. And the way that I like to do Bible study is to say, okay, let's look beyond that embedded idea. Let's look at what it would look like if we were in the first century, which is a hard, hard thing to do because you are all in the 21st century. And, and, and for us to do this, it, it's really hard for us to necessarily put ourselves in their shoes. So with that being said, let me let me just give you a little bit of history uh, of what we know. It's just coincidentally, this uh, for those of you that are online, I I always read uh, from the what's called the New Revised Standard Version. Um, this particular collection of the New Revised Standard Version is done by what we call the New Interpreter's Bible, which is um, for the world of academia. It's the way that you discern whether it's an academic thought or just somebody's agenda is what we call peer review. Um, you have a group of scholars that come from every walk of life that sit down with you and you say, well, I think the Gospel of Matthew says this. And they say, well, you're an idiot. And then they say, and then you walk through this whole conversation together until there's some sort of truth that comes out of that. It's a very hard process. Um, it's very belligerent. Um, 
I've, I've been in conversations with scholars as they discuss the gospel of Mark and um, it's, it's, it's intimidating for the, the witnesses you know, as they're putting this together because you're, you're not just changing embedded theology, you're also changing <clears throat> some of the study of history and archaeology because we've, had, we've found so much information within the last 50 years. Um, so it, it's, it's really hard. Uh, this would have been written in Greek. Um, this, this matters. Uh, we've been spending so much time in the Hebrew Bible, um, and, you know, I, I am not going to pretend that I read, write, and can translate Hebrew real well. I, I study, um, but the fact that it's written in Greek matters because that gives us a time as to when it was written. Um, scholars differ on this opinion. Um, the, my professor that I'm taking a class with right now, Dr. Warren Carter, just so coincidentally wrote a commentary for this, Gospel of Matthew, that's in my New Interpreter's Bible. I had no idea it was him until I was in his class. He says, oh, yeah, I wrote that. Oh, awesome. No pressure at all. Um, and and his my favorite part of him talking about Dr. Warren Carter's understanding of the Gospel of Matthew is the timing gives it towards the end of the first century. Um, you'll see people really wanting to make a big deal of the timing, like if it's at 80 or if it's 90. This matters to them because of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70. So the way that I always make people hear this is when, when you hear texts in the New Testament, it matters as to before and after the destruction of the temple. There's a lot of speculation that the Gospel of Mark was written before, during, and after uh, because of some of the language, specifically Mark chapter 13. And Matthew, coincidentally, has an apocalyptic chapter as well. But these apocalyptic chapters are specifically talking about the destruction of the temple. And what I try to portray to all of our study groups is the fact that what, what is important to understand is, is that the temple was the only place on earth that God came to. So your burnt offerings had to be there. Your, your tithe had to go there. Um, your families had to travel and, and, and go to this place maybe once, maybe four times a year. Um, it was a huge deal for them. And then without trying to sound so flippant, Rome tore it down to the, to the foundation just on a whim. Um, I've had two different professors that are considered New Testament scholars and first century Roman um, people. And this, this, is, this is how they describe the Gospel of Matthew and pretty much the Holy Testament. We get this idea from Rome in, in around the 60s, Nero has gotten this idea that, uh, well, see, Mark Antony, you all know that story, uh, was building this massive navy. And um, in the process of it, it looked to Rome that Mark Antony was going to claim the throne as emperor. And that, that's how he did it, it was through military might. And uh, so this is a little bit before 60, obviously. So this all happens. They get word of it in Rome. The emperor at the time would have been uh, uh, Nero. 
sends his entire army from Rome to Egypt on land. Mind you, it took them about two years to get to Egypt because they found out that they heard that Mark Antony or whoever was there at that time was going to try to overthrow Rome. It costs a lot of money. I mean, I want you to think about this. You're feeding thousands of men. You're taking care of all of their animals. You're talking about the, the wear and tear, not to mention the roads had to be in good shape so that the army could get there. They get all the way to Egypt and they're like, hey guys, how's it going? You want something to eat? They're like, oh, you're really not going to come start a battle with us? No, no, we really had no idea that there was anything going on. We were building a drone. And, and uh, they're like, oh, well, this stinks. <laughs> we came all this way for <laughs> we nothing. We came all this way for nothing. I mean, I had one professor describe it to me this way. And then, and then on their way back, uh, almost lost it. Titus, yeah, large Titus. So Titus is the general of this army. And on the way back, now we're about 68, 69, uh, we, there's, a, there's a little bit of an insurrection taking place in Jerusalem with these Christian people. And they're causing problems. And I say insurrection, they're throwing rocks at the Roman soldiers. They're, um, they're, they're doing what they can because they have no ability to have weapons. And um, so Titus, in his infinite wisdom, decides, well, let's, let's just destroy Jerusalem and take away all of their wealth, which was, had amassed to a great amount, and let's take that back to Rome. And so they did. It took about, uh, about two weeks. Um, there was really no battle. They just swiped it out, took it all out, loaded all the gold up, and headed back to Rome. They get back to Rome. I think it's about 72 now, so 68 to 72. Um, they, get, they get back to Rome. They have this huge parade in Rome that shows all this wealth of all of the stuff that they took from um, uh, Jerusalem. And Titus then becomes emperor. Uh, General Titus now becomes emperor. And he builds an arch right outside of Rome, which, by the way, is still there. Um, and on one side of it, it's on the east side of it, he shows the images of his spo the spoils of his war. And on it, you know this is to be true because he's got pictures of the menorah on there. He's got pictures of uh, Ark of the Covenant. He's got lampstands, just like we've been reading about in the tabernacle, all carved into this stone right as you walk into Rome. And it's on this thing to show the power of Rome, uh, you know, and the destruction of Jerusalem, you know, these wicked, wicked Jerusalem people. And so uh, this, these people that are hearing this are left in the aftermath. They're not the ones that uh, are going to battle Rome. They can't do anything. Um, but at the same time, they're left with this misery and this post-traumatic stress of You've just taken away everything that we've ever believed in just to have money. Um, so, so this is the, the language. This is, this is where the Gospel of Matthew comes from. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, there's supposed to be a moment of hope. Um, Jesus is our Messiah. It's not the word Mashiach. Remember, I, I, I might have messed this up at one point, but Mashiach does not mean Messiah. Mashiach is like superhero, right? <laughs> 
Messiah is a, is a Greek term. It's a, it's a big deal. This is, a, this is the son. Um, Matthew struggles with calling the son of man, son of God, right? So this is something different to save us from, frankly, the Roman Empire. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the audience. This is what Dr. Carter talked to me about. And I don't ever get to talk to you about this. But before I go on, do you have any questions? Well, I understand that Rome was powerful, but did it kind of just, I don't want to say just pop up, no. but it just seems like all of a sudden it grew very quickly and its power. Um, it, it feels that way. It, it didn't. It, it took quite a lot of time, you know, after Alexander the Great um, dies, his form of governance passed on to the, the people that worked under him. So this idea of empire is not new. I mean, it's, it's, it goes through all the way through history. You know, you got everywhere from Genghis Khan, who basically takes over all of Asia and then even comes down into India at some point, where you even have stories of uh, Alexander the Great, who has taken over just about most of the Mediterranean and stops right at about India. Um, and then, so by the time Rome starts to create its governance. Um, this, this is about 400 BCE. So this is way before oh, wow. Jesus happens. And Hellenism is now uh, the, 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 the official way of educating. And, and that's why Greek is the only language allowed to be spoke throughout the empire. Hellenism starts around 300 BCE. And, and then from that point on, by the time Rome really starts to get itself into power, it's a, it's a little about... And I'm probably giving you the wrong dates. I can tell you that Rome doesn't affect Jerusalem until after 150 BCE. In 150 BCE, we have what's called the, the Maccabean Revolt. And Jerusalem rules itself for about 100 years, um, which is unheard of. And after that, a client king came and took over. So it's it makes sense that the timing about 150 years before Christ, there was a moment of peace, and then the Roman Empire just kind of implodes, for a better phrase. So yeah, that did happen. Um, and and uh, it was brilliant. It was, it was brilliant the way that they created themselves. It was brilliant the way they, they created their governing system. We get, we get a lot of confusion. This is a thing I need to give you this mis this. Uh, statement before we go too far. Um, the Roman Empire is not, we did not design ourselves after the Roman Empire, the United States. Every, everybody likes to say that. Well, we designed ourselves. No, 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 no. We decided ourselves off of a document written by Plato called the, the Republic. And Plato creates kind of this hierarchical structure of how to, how to govern your empire or your country, right? And and our founding fathers were uh, students of Plato and Aristotle. So they, they knew of these things, just like the founders of Rome. What Rome does is similar in the sense that they created a Senate. There was an emperor. There were uh, constituents that got client kings that were then like uh, mayors, you know. Uh, they, they had city councils like, like we do, you know, so there were... There were parts of that where that were the same. The thing that changed them 
and which makes us completely different than them is they didn't have a constitution. They did not have a bill of rights. There was no question of you uh, having an alienable rights, right? You belonged to Rome and, and that's all that mattered. You were allowed to breathe because Rome said so. And this is how they created their emperors. The emperors have all of these beautiful uh, stories of how they, uh, well, like, for example, Octavius, who ends up becoming Julius Caesar. He has this legend, and it's, and it's uh, designed it on the marble wall, that he, he was born without a father. And even though we know his father was alive, because there's this, there's this whole story about his dad, uh, the original Caesar. Uh, so the Octavius becomes this, he, just, he was born with, in miraculous ways. And in this miraculous birth, he was able to heal people, sick people. He was able to cast out demons, literally the same language. He was able to uh, bring the empire underneath him, who was in charge of everything underneath the sun. And he ruled everything underneath the water and on the land. Sound familiar? So it's not the first time we've heard this. Um, and so Caesar, this is all before Jesus, right? This is all before Jesus. The Egyptians did the same thing. Pharaoh, everything from the sun down. Pharaoh was God. Julius Caesar did not say that he was God. He worked for the gods, gods plural, right? And, and, and the gods anointed him as emperor. See how much of a change this matters? And so the power that gets created is you do what we say or you die. If you don't like it, too bad. You don't get to go anywhere else. This is how it is. Um, this is a big deal. This is the audience. Now, before we go any further, do you, do you see the, the oppression that happens right off the bat? The other reason that this is not designed, the United States is not designed in the same way that Rome was, is that Rome created in their system a place for the elite. These are the people that have all the money. They're the ones that make all the decisions. They make all the stuff. Theoretically, the way that we created our country, we tried to break that habit and, and give people a vote, right? That, that matters. There were votes that didn't really matter in Rome. Because the elite were the 2% of the entire world. Dr. Carter gave us these numbers that basically at Rome's highest moment was is there were 7 million people under the empire of Rome. And the elite took basically the top 2 or 3% of that 7 million. So just, just think of that number. That's who was in charge. Um, and this, this is a big deal. So everyone else were poor. They were starving. They were, uh, they, there was not a way of success. You didn't get to jump up in, in categories. You were born into existence. And you knew that if you were born a carpenter, you were going to die a carpenter. You didn't get to be uh, a senator. That's just, that's just not the way it worked. Um, and so you could go up in the, there's, there's a whole, graph I could show you guys, but I'm not going to, of how the hierarchical structure worked within the non-elite culture. Um, 
And the, the highest of those would have been like the artists. These are the ones that wove the tapestries, that carved the marble, that they, uh, they were, you had to have talent in order to do those things. So they would have been kind of at the top of that, but they still would have been treated like garbage. Their homes might just be, have an extra room or two. You know, they might have a kitchen. They might, they might have a table that, that, that would, that would have mattered. Um, but you took what they gave you. That's right. Yeah. And, and you were thankful. So when you hear the gospel no. of Matthew, yeah. yeah, you know. To their face. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. <laughs> to their face. So the gospel of Matthew is the conversation in the background. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the voice of these people talking about the what if. What would happen if God, our God, truly took power and created a better emperor? Now, that, that changes my way of thinking a lot because I was always taught in a different way. But Dr. Carter presented it to me this way, and, and it makes sense. Because if, if Jesus comes to replace the emperor, now Jesus is in charge of the world. And we don't have to worry about the gods, plural. We worry about our God. And our God doesn't what? Break promises. Doesn't break promises. And so if this God that doesn't break promises and is going to encompass us all into the world, we will then serve Jesus. So the language then changes when you read the Gospel of Matthew from this point. The audience that's hearing this are looking at Jesus as being the next emperor. And that's okay. Is that one of the reasons they we always hear about coming of a king? Yes. Because yes. They, they thought that he was going to be in Rome. That's so right. Speak. Yes, no, they absolutely thought so. They thought that there would be these great parades and that he would come in and he would he would take over Rome. And and the and the, and the problem with this though is that you can't read this and then go, well, you can't look at it from a 21st century lens and say, well, it means this for him as it does to me. Because for example, <laughs> one of the problems with the Gospel of Matthew, and this is why we have this introductory conversation. Jesus doesn't speak against slavery. Slavery is a part of their day-to-day -day life. It's just the way things are. We know that everyone who had any money had slaves so that they could make more money. And he made more money to pay Rome. Jesus does not speak against slavery in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus speaks highly of women, which is not that unheard of in the Gospel of Matthew. But it's contradictory to the culture. It's not, at this time, I know I've said it, but I need to modify that. We, we, we tend to think that women were looked at as property most of the time, but that's, that's an older thought. By the time we get here, women have businesses. They may have inherited it from their husband, but we know for a fact in the Gospels that there are women that had a business that were very wealthy and very successful, wealthy in the sense that they could have their own food and they could afford slaves, you know, so that, that that's a big deal. And, and so listening to Matthew with that tone changes a little bit. Um, good. Well, kind of dovetailing what we're talking about, the importance of the transfiguration. Yeah. That there were witnesses there. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. God said. <laughs> yeah. You are my son, or yeah, my beloved son, or something. Yeah, uh, th this is this is another big thing, another light to Rome. 
Octavius, remember me telling you about him a little bit ago? Uh, one of the things that makes them divine emperors is their death story. And Octavius ascends into Mount Olympus. Well, it wouldn't have been Mount Olympus, but he ascends into the heavens. Um, and his body is never found. We have no tomb for Octavius Caesar. Uh, his body is, his is, and they watched him as he ascended into the heavens. Like they have documented, written uh, tablets of Octavius's death, and it looks almost identical to the transfiguration story. It doesn't change what we believe at all. I'm just saying it's interesting that all of these leaders, including Nero, have their own death story that elevates them into the heavens. And at the same time, these people that have been oppressed by Rome for, you know, by this point, at least a century, have their own story of, that, of our Messiah, our emperor. Um, and the transfiguration, that's, that's, a, big, that's a big one. Uh, his birth, his death, his resurrection. None of the emperors have a resurrection story. There was a warning that Nero would come back. Totally not joking. When Nero dies, uh, all throughout Rome, and this is in the 60s, so this is right before the Temple of Jerusalem is destroyed, and right before the Gospel of Matthew is written, there were stories of Nero when he dies that he, they could see him running the streets of Rome and, and, and you know cursing as he went down. That, and so there were literal eyewitness accounts that Nero wasn't actually dead. Ergo, he had come back from the dead to, you know, commit his revenge against those that killed him when he killed his own mom right after he became emperor just because he didn't like what she said. Like, he's total wacko. wacko. Um, so, yeah, so, so like, I, I say all this because, again, this all matters when we read the Gospel of Matthew. You, you can't, you just, you really should not look at the Gospel of Matthew as, well, it has the Great Commission. Yes, it does. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a genealogy of Jesus. Absolutely. Um, but when we read the Gospels, we want, to, we want to take a step outside of our embedded world and step into their world for just a moment to see how much it actually really does matter to us from their lens. It's like hearing the stories that we grew up with about the land run and how hard it was. It's like hearing the stories of the Dust Bowl and how people had to survive through that or live through the Great Depression and how, how we should not make those same mistakes. It's the same type of language that the Gospel of Matthew is being written in. And the most beautiful part, it's been written to an audience of non-elite people. We today are elites, whether we want to believe it or not, Re regardless of our socioeconomic status, none of you are afraid to breathe. That you take one misstep and a Roman soldier could kill you at, a, at, his, at his whim. And that's because we live in America. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's very hard to separate that idea that we live in the United States and that this is Rome. No, not the same. Nowhere near it. We have the same book that we came from, but at the end of the day, two different translations. Just like our conversation at the very beginning of this was is that when we translate, um, the translation matters. And whoever wrote it was obviously very intelligent. Um, 
There's a lot of myth about who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the, when we were taught, I think most of you all, when you grew up, what, who do you remember wrote the Gospel of Matthew? It's okay. I was growing up, I always thought it was Matthew. <laughs> Matthew. And, and, and what did Matthew do for a living? Tax collector. Tax collector, okay. That's how I think Cindy. Anybody else hear anything different? <laughs> did, did, any, did any of you, when you were growing up, hear that the, this Matthew might have been a disciple or might have been one of the 12? Okay. My Bible, <clears throat> Josh, my yeah. Bible says that he's one of um, one of the 12. That's. I was just getting ready to say that. Most of your commentaries are written and this is where the New Testament matters. Most of your commentaries are written based off of the denominational understanding of the New Testament, not an academic one. Not that that's wrong. It's just in an academic world, this Matthew is not one of the 12. I, I mean, just, just look at the time frame. If, if, if Jesus died in 33, and this, these disciples, which we all know were older, right? that this person had to have been in their, their late 90s. Now, I know everybody in this room is going, well, that's possible. <laughs> Not back then. <laughs> Not back then. The, the average mortality rate for people was, if you lived to 60, it, it was a miracle. You remember, this is, this is a big deal. The sanitary conditions, I mean, you think about the lack of hygiene. There's people on top of people. There was no quarantining. There was just, you know, people get sick, a whole section of town died. Like this is the, when somebody gets leprosy, that's why they kicked them out because they knew that was going to happen. So it, without saying that your commentary is wrong, Robert, your commentary is um, wrong. <laughs> Josh, yeah. let, let, let me clarify because I don't want to be too misleading. It that's says okay. A long tradition has assigned it to Matthew. Ah, good commentary. Good yeah. commentary. Oh, what was that again? A long tradition assigned that Matthew was one of the 12 disciples. Yeah, so the church. Wrote it. I was just going to say, my brain simply said that whoever wrote it knew Matthew. Right, right. <laughs> Who could have known Matthew, right? Yeah, absolutely. But it, al it also says that almost all of Matthew is taken from Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, that's a good so, commentary. So that, that kind of, okay, well, then where does Matthew fit into this other than other than who he's writing to? Because I wanted to get to that also. Oh, yeah. My, no, Bible, my Bible says that he's addressing the the Jewish um, group. Um, okay. I mean... I would I would say that it's it's uh most most of them would say it's a Jewish audience. And that and, and the reason that it's a Jewish audience is because Matthew has a very very unique understanding of Torah and and has a strong understanding of of um, the Hebrew Bible. I mean they, it quotes it verbatim multiple times. Yeah, that's that's the whole commentary. That's what it's referencing as to why they're he's addressing the Jewish, um, or maybe not addressing them, 
but it's written from the Jewish perspective because of all of the prophecies. Yeah. And now there's another there's another historical document that you all uh, have never heard of, uh, and maybe you have, uh, that was written at the time of Ignatius. It's called the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. This uh, Didache was a collection of writings that were both Jewish and Christian that also um, Matthew pulls from, as well as from Mark. Um, so I want to make sure I tell you that also. The audience that probably would have heard the Gospel of Mark, as far as we can tell, would be uh, the people of Galilee. Um, and uh, there's a town in Syria called Antioch. Um, we, we know this because the people, there's specific points in the Gospel of Matthew that only the people in Antioch would have known. And there's specific places in the Gospel of Matthew that only the people of Galilee would have known. The Antioch part makes it separate from Mark and Luke. Um, so, but the writer of Matthew had to know about the Gospel of Mark, as well as Didache, uh, that book, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. Um, Lord, I, got, you, uh, got to another question, Josh. Yeah. Um, since we're kind of hammering out time here, uh, Jesus died 33 AD. Temple was destroyed 70 AD. Mm -hmm. You'd mentioned, and I just hadn't ever put Nero in there. So Nero's in there somewhere in between. Yep. Mid 60s. And, or early. Yeah, it's, it's early 60s. Josh, yes. Yes, my commentary says that none of the four Gospels include the names of their authors in the original manuscripts, and they are all technically anonymous written. That, that, is, that is right. So these, these, these names were assigned later on. Yeah. think Matthew in Greek means like disciple or I don't think I ever looked it up yeah I don't remember there's something about the name Matthew it's like disciple or I don't remember I have to look that up um and when it says gift of the Lord is what Matthew okay yeah I go with that gift of the Lord it's an interesting idea mm -hmm. um The Gospel of Matthew is broke down into six sections. For those of you that want to know, uh, the first part is Jesus' birth. He's conceived, commissioned. Um, so, right off the bat, it's, it's about how he comes into being. And, like I said, I'm using this emperor term on purpose how he's going to become the new emperor or the new ruler of the people of God. Um, so that happens in chapter uh, 1 through chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus' ministry does not begin until chapter 4, verse 17. And then his ministry goes from that to chapter 11. 
Now, Matthew does this beautiful thing, starting in chapter 11, where he creates a response. So the people that hear this ministry, there's a moment of response. And we see that in chapter 11, verse 2, through chapter 16, verse 20. Chapter 16, verse 20. Dr. Carter puts it here as the twofold response to Jesus' ministry, but I just think responding to Jesus' ministry is just fine. Sorry, Dr. Carter, if you listen to this, you're still my hero. Uh, then he writes, um, Dr. Carter breaks it down and says, There's, there has to be the journey to Jerusalem, right? So there has to be this great migration of power. That starts chapter 16, verse 21, and goes all the way to chapter 20, verse 34. Call it the migration of power. I would call it that. Dr. <laughs> Carter calls it the journey to Jerusalem and the cross. But there's movement. That's why I call it the migration of power. Movement. He's he's got to go from one place to the next in order to get to the cross. And then he arrives in Jerusalem. That fifth section is Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And I like Dr. Carter's uh, thing. He says it's. The Empire Strikes Back uh, in chapter, um, what do you have here? Chapter 21, all the way to chapter 27, verse 66. That's when the Empire comes back. And he puts a lot of effort in writing his commentary about this one. But after taking the class from him and hearing about Matthew for an entire day, uh, which is nine hours, which was fun. Did you say 21 through 27? 27, 60. Yeah, chapter, what did I say? Chapter 21, verse 1, through chapter 27, verse 66. Twenty-seven is a long chapter. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what Huge. Doing. And then the very last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is Dr. Carter calls this God thwarts the rulers, right? I like to say stomps them. God stomps the rulers. <laughs> That's just the, the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Robert, are you trying to say something? No. My we're on my phone and I keep getting messages. Oh, well, I didn't send it to you, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is this is very typical of the way things would have been written at that time frame, um, which is why you, we typically put the Gospel of Luke at the same time frame, if not a little bit after. Um, well, there's a lot of thought right now that, that the Luke was probably written closer to the second century than Matthew, um, partly because. As I've said before a million times, when you get to the book of Acts, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, um, there's institutional ideas of faith that were not present at the time the Gospel of Mark was written. 
like for example, the idea of baptism being a thing that wasn't we have no no proof that that took place in the first century at all until towards the end. And they actually have established themselves as kind of a movement. Um, it's more like a ragtag group of people saying that we believe in Jesus and Jesus is going to overthrow the empire when he comes back. You know, it's kind of a big deal. Um, you know, those headings that put from time to time. Yeah. Mine, when it's getting ready for the, the entrance into Jerusalem, it says... Jerusalem to the king. Where was that? Chapter 21? Yeah, chapter 21. Also, the text. Jesus, Jerusalem as king. <laughs> Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. That's good. I like that. Somebody stuck that in there. That's good. Yeah, and, I, and uh, as we talk about the Gospel of Matthew, especially with your commentaries, uh, I really want you to pay attention to the headings. Um, they, they get really creative with this. Um, they they uh, really have some good conversation about it. Uh, so there we are. That's your introduction. That took me a little less than 45 minutes, which I was, <laughs> I was planning on doing. I wanted us to have this conversation because when we start reading the Gospel of Matthew, and especially for those that are listening on the podcast, that when you read the Gospel of Matthew in this way, it changes. It doesn't change our understanding of Christ. It's very important that I say this before I read anything. It does not change our understanding of Christ. It changes the way that we hear how we understand Christ from their lips. Um, and and uh, it, it goes right off into, if this was to a Jewish audience... Uh, this person had to have been Jewish of some form or fashion. How they were, they couldn't practice their Judaism anymore because the temple was gone. Um, this person was smart, had the ability to write, knew history, knew uh, Hebrew Bible. So what the now scholars are leaning towards does not need to be a tax collector but could have been a Pharisee, um, which would make it more sense because of the understanding and connection and the ability to tell the story. That's what Pharisees do. When the temple is destroyed, Pharisees, which are not always bad people, they're just painted as bad in our text, become rabbis. They are the teachers of the law. It's, it's very important to understand. So this, this person probably uh, could have been more of a Pharisee than a tax collector. Um, tax collector was known how to write numbers, and this is where it gets really frustrating um, because we tend to think that they all knew how to read and write. They did not. Uh, remember, that's an elite function. So if you were a scribe, you knew how to write down what they were saying, but you didn't know exactly what you were writing. You were describing it. And how do you know this? There's no spaces in these texts. There's just these words all kind of put together. There's a half a word here and then a half a word that starts on the next line. Um, you know, so it's, it's, there's no punctuation in this. Um, so, and then, and if, it, if Matthew had been a tax collector, the only thing he would have known how to do was keep chicken stretch marks because of the money, you know, so it could, it, it just physically couldn't be. Does that change our understanding? No, I hope it does not. 
It's just I want us to make sure we come at it for the right lens. So with that being said, I do not want to go without reading some. Go ahead, Kim. Well, I was just going to ask. We just got finished with Exodus. Yes. So, and we're getting ready to start. Jesus is going to be born. Yep. What's kind of happened to the people walking in the wilderness? And I mean, kind of what? Well, they've had. Quick, you know, quick. what's happened in. In the time frame between yes. Exodus and years. The temple has been talking just, about a thousand years. About a thousand years. Well, hey, a little a over a thousand years. <laughs> about a thousand he was years. asking me to remember 50 years ago. So <laughs> I mean, yeah. no. uh, you got about a thousand year period. The temple has been built. The tabernacle has been destroyed. The temple has been built once, been destroyed. The walls of the temple have been built up and destroyed. And this is the second temple that's been built and has somehow stayed together, paid and funded completely by Herod the Great. Just, just say, just yeah. outside the side. <laughs> Who is an appointed king. Uh, he's a bad, bad, bad dude, but he, he wants to show his power. So um, uh, th there's now created a hierarchical structure between the Jewish culture. Now that they have a priest, they have chief priest, uh, priests, they have uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes. They have uh, now created a council called the Sanhedrin. They've, uh, they are continuing to walk in the wilderness, but uh, in, again, finding themselves in yet another empire. Or isn't walking in the wilderness, is that more figuratively speaking? It's figuratively speaking. No, they have <laughs> actually yes. walking. Yeah, they, okay. they've settled. So all of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, they've all established themselves mm -hmm. of what they're doing mm -hmm. and where and they're at. And Jerusalem is home base. And we're still teaching as Torah. Torah. Enjoying everyday life. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever that is. With any luck at all. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and it's just yet another, another empire that is allowing them to have breath. So it went from Egyptians to Assyrians to Babylonians to Persians to... Now, you know, I mean, then there's the Greeks, and then now they find themselves with the Romans. So, yeah, so they're, they're, they're used to this. This is no nothing new to them, um, which is coincidental. I'm glad you brought that up, because in the in typical Jewish fashion, they, they, want to, they want to bring you up to date. So uh, Robert and I had this conversation a lot, specifically about the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17, and the, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, what I would like for you all to do is, is, as I'm reading this, I want you to notice some of the names specifically. And as, as I'm reading it, I'd like you to write down any names that you have questions about. Because some of these you've heard before. Okay? So here we go. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. An account of the genealogy uh, or birth, depending on which translation you have, of Jesus, the Messiah, or just Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, here we go, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, write that name down, Tamar is an important deal, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. Write that down. Mm -hmm. By Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. 
Write that name down. <laughs> and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, 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 the father of Abiha, Abiha, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Yoram, uh, Yoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, that's an important one, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, big, big deal, big, huge deal, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Brilliant writing. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoaniah, the father of Zalafail, Salafail, Salafail, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, ding, 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 ding. And Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I'm not sure that ever works out, but I've never gone through and, and tried to figure out through the years if they've left anybody out. Oh, they left out all kinds of people. Left out all kinds of people. <laughs> it's not 14 and 14 and 14. No. They made it too even. The, the tricky thing for me is that Jesus was born to Mary and Jacob was only, I mean, Joseph. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph was only the one who acted as his father. Yet it's his genealogy, which makes no sense at all. That has nothing to do with Jesus. You're absolutely right. And I can't wait to tell you the answer. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> because the men were men. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is all Joseph's family. This is not Mary's. And Joseph yep. did not contribute anything to Jesus' birth. Uh, but that's important. We'll get to that in a second. What else oh, okay. pops up in your head? Because that's the, that's the gold star answer at the end. Is that what pops in my head is, uh, and this is the house that God built, you know? The, oh, yeah. This is the, the, yeah. But the promises are coming down through there. Oh, yeah. There's huge, huge promises, Ruth. I thought Mary was also a descendant of David. Nope. Her dad was Le Zachariah. Zachariah was a Levite. They're not descendants of David. David's from the house of Judah. Remember, Levites get set aside in the book of Exodus. Aaron creates his own basic tribe, basically, is what ends up happening. From that point on, everybody that was born from the lineage of Aaron becomes a priest. We know that Mary and his, her coincidental sister their mom or their dad was a, a priest, which is weird because you're only Jewish by your mother's thing. And uh, but their only lineage, we don't know anything about their mom. We just know about their dad. Which makes no sense at all. Nope. In verse six, yep. did you mention Bathsheba? 
Uh, it says the wife, the, the mother had, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay. That's Bathsheba. Okay. That's Bathsheba. All right. Yes. Mine specifically says Bathsheba. Yeah. Nice. Okay. They didn't think you'd figure out who'd been the mother of, <laughs> of Uriah's wife. So from this, with the exception of Mary, they're really, I mean, everything is just talking about the men. Oh, yes. Well, so except for Ruth and Tamar. Tamar. Yeah. They're listed as mothers. You know, if you're thinking about why, why we're reading about, why we're going through Joseph <laughs> and not Mary's family or genealogy, men were the key. Men yep. were the, yep. They were the legal ones. Yep. Women were there and, and were, yeah, yeah very, um, you know, you talk about Ruth and uh, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, others, but the men were the ones that had the, the power, if it was to say, legally. Women, although you did say then that women had a business. So that may have been a little later. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, women definitely have a massive role in this genealogy. Yes. Tamar, Ruth, mm -hmm. Bathsheba are not from mm -hmm. the original 12 tribes. Mm -hmm. Tamar does something with Judah to make sure that he follows Torah, even though she's mm -hmm. not from it. She remember she's only dresses up like a prostitute, yeah, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Ruth is not from the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, and we all know that's a Moabite. Of, that's right. She's a Moabite woman who is mm -hmm. has direct connections to the children of Lot. That's a big deal. So here you've got that connection. Then Bathsheba, we don't exactly know where, where she, she came from. from. But at the same time, Uriah she is lifted up in this story on purpose because here's yet another woman who was had these. There's a divine birth in these stories. Tamar from following Torah, Ruth from following Torah, Bathsheba. Nothing beautiful about that story except for they had a child. What about Rahab? Yeah, father Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. So he's that's that's the first time you've heard uh his his name mentioned in a long time. Like it's his there's a family member line there. Boaz becoming the father of Obed by Ruth. Right. Well, Rahab is Boaz's dad. Oh, yeah, my hand says it. whose mother was. Okay. Solomon. 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 Somebody was the father. Was the father of Boaz, whose mother was. Oh, yeah, no, he, he's got it right here. Five women are included uh, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Mary, all except Mary of either Gentile origins or Gentile connections. More importantly, they are in relationships in some way marginal and to undermine the conventional patriarchal marriage pattern. <laughs> expressed in the first in the 39 appearances of the phrase was the father of God keep thinking did you say 39 Josh say that again I said did you say 39 yes I quickly counted earlier and that's how many fathers I read in there was 39 right so he, lists, he puts these names of these women but it's supposed to be counteract <laughs> The 39 appearances of the dead. Yeah. Well, the only reason I mentioned that is 14, 14, and 14 didn't add up to 39 on my calculator. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 yeah. uh it's and I was going to ask what the significance, why are they trying to drive a significance with a 14? I mean, that gets you back to David and even numbers. Of seven and they like sevens. What she just said. It's a multiple of seven and they like sevens. It shows completion. But they're, you know, to them, it's not that important. It's not to me either, since it doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's a page filler. Why did they would have had all girls? Oh, well, they would have listed. Maybe that's the reason those other ones aren't listed. We don't have daughters mentioned in here, except for like a couple places. Leviticus or somewhere in there, one man only has daughters, and they give the daughters the inheritance. It's a big deal in one of those books. But I can't remember. It's Leviticus. It could be Deuteronomy, but I think it's Leviticus. It's in Leviticus. And I'm going to have to go back because Dr. Davison wrote a book, a whole thing about that. Okay. So I thought it was interesting. Yes, it's a great story. My favorite part of this whole story here, and to answer Sally's original question, is these women are mentioned out of extraordinary Gentile means. Otherwise, they wouldn't have mentioned them at all. Otherwise, they wouldn't have mentioned them at all. And then the lineage is tied to Joseph to furthermore show the aspect of Torah because Joseph adopts Mary, his wife. She becomes okay. He takes care of her. She's no longer in, in, in danger. And that just reinforces Torah. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a big deal. Like, I, I, do I like it? No. Well, but that, but I'm not in the first century. <laughs> They're a patriarchal bunch. The fact that they put five women in this genealogy was already pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah. So in the first century, this was not a problem. This is a beautiful thing. This is yeah. the way we do things. This is the way we do things. And Mary, she did do this, but it's really Joseph's child. It's because that comes from the, um, oh, I, I just lost, leverage marriage. In the book of Deuteronomy, we get this conversation about how if I have a child and I die, um, and my wife has to marry my brother Luke, and if they have a child, that child is mine, even though it's yeah. between them. So in this story, there's a conversation of leverage marriage here. Okay. Uh, that God has ordained this through Joseph all the way back to What does leveret mean? So there's, I don't remember. It's a, <laughs> I just remember the term. Anybody have uh, a dictionary? <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's, not a, uh, it's not like a level thing, but it's, it's a okay. Levitical conversation. So, uh, yeah, it's just this weird conversation that takes place on a tradition, again, that we know nothing about, but we know that it was carried out. We know that part anthropologically took place. So it's a really cool genealogy when you look at it that way. Um, Dr. Carter, uh, he's like, now listen, he, he, he wanted me to, he said this, when you teach this, you should say, the gospel also presents Rome as punishing the people in 70, but Rome itself will be punished at Jesus's return. Empires resist, but are subject to God's purposes. So when you have the lineage of the Caesars, right, they have this lineage, this is in direct contradiction to what's happening in Rome. Oh yeah? 
you have a divine birth. Let, let us show ours is older than Rome. <laughs> it has survived the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, all of those empires have come and gone, and we're still here. I mean, it's uh, when he said it in class, I mean, I, I mean, I got goosebumps again. You know, it's like this idea, here's our lineage. It doesn't have to be 14 and 14 and 14. It just proves that from the time of Abraham, we have always been under God's uh, loving arms. And God never breaks promises. And here's our Messiah. So when you switch the, the narrative then and you start looking at it from that lens, all of a sudden we recognize God's faithfulness to, and promises and purposes, no matter what imperial power is there, that, that God uh, will be there. Um, this is just, I just love that. I just, this is his uh, dialogue. He has a wonderful uh, book that he wrote uh, about the Gospel of Matthew that's just phenomenally. And he talks more about this in great detail. It's really thick and it's really hard to read, but um, it's really good. Um, okay, so we need to stop at table five. Well, this definitely proves that God loves all the that's Jews right. and the Gentiles. That's right. That's that's, that's right. the most important part of this. This is that Jews and Gentiles are included in this lineage. And did you say something? Um, then, Okay, any other questions, comments? Okay, so next week we'll start at uh, Matthew chapter 1 and the birth narrative um, and talk about the, vis the visit of the wise people. Um, I'm glad you brought your long uh, Greek New Testament. Um, that's that's my that's my linear. That's, well, linear? that's not my Greek New Testament's about that big. Oh, okay, <laughs> just um, when we get to it, we're gonna. I'm gonna need your help. Okay, if you'll point out these for me. I can do pronunciations and I can read it, but I can't tell you what it means. That's mm -hmm. what I, I help that linear. part. <laughs> that's the part I need. I need to hear the word and then I can tell. You. Okay. All right. So here we go. Uh, I'm gonna close off the recording.